it's your favorite mango dick expert, Felissa Rose, and I'm letting you know that the rants from the Black Lodge podcast are doing the episode on Sleepaway Camp. Woohoo! I'm so thrilled that this is the episode where maybe hmm, my friend Joe Bob Riggs just might consider, might give, might think about giving the Silver Bolo Award for this. And maybe Darcy too. I love you, and you should meet me at the waterfront after the social. Live from the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burning, head turning, ass kicking, machismo dripping, master podcasting, mouthpiece of the Southeast, uncontested superstar of the airwaves, and your reigning and defending podcast champion of the world, Brandon A. Lane, bringing you another edition of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. Throw on your crop top, cram your balls into a pair of short shorts, and meet me at the waterfront after the social, because tonight we're tackling one of the most infamously controversial slasher films of all time with an in-depth retrospective of 1983's Sleepaway Camp. Fat Tony will be joining me after the break, and we're going to discuss the film in question at length. But first, I gotta give a huge shout-out to the lovely lady you heard at the top of this episode, that being the star of Sleepaway Camp herself, the very, very talented and incredibly nice Felissa Rose. I was actually fortunate enough to meet Miss Felissa back this past October at a small convention in Newport, Tennessee, which is just down the road from the Black Lodge. And I gotta say, she could have not been nicer. So in restitution for her involvement in this episode, I want each and every one of you out there in the Rant Army, hop on Twitter, give her a follow, at Felissa underscore Rose. Thank you so much, Felissa. I will hook you up with Ripley's tickets the next time you are in town. I'm not joking. Please hit me up for that. Now, once you've followed her, you gotta do the same for us. Follow the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast on social media, at Rants Black Lodge. Please subscribe to the podcast on one of the many podcasting platforms we're available on, including Spotify, Apple Podcast, on down the line, whatever your app of choice is, please subscribe now. And don't forget to stop by our homepage at JuicyKruger.com. And for the love of Cthulhu, buy a t-shirt or a mug from our web store at RantArmy.com. All right, guys, we're going to dive deep into the bloody waters of Camp Arawak with a sleepaway camp retrospective when we come back from the break. But first, here's some messages from our sponsors. Come on down to Mask by Lance, premium Friday the 13th custom-made hockey mask, down there in Tennessee by Lance McKinney. Find him on Facebook and Instagram over at Mask by Lance. Go order one now, boy! Yee-hoo! Next Generation Wrestling brings some of the most talked about and star-studded professional wrestlers from around the world. Based out of East Tennessee, NGW is becoming one of the most sought-after independent wrestling promotions in the past four years. Witness NGW Live or on demand on the High Spots Wrestling Network streaming app. 
follow us on social media platforms at NextGenTN. Assholes, it's me, Bomer the Skeleton, mascot of the Rants for the Black Lodge podcast. Here to sell you some shit you probably can't afford. Are you low on cash? That's not a problem. Sell your children, sell your blood, go to the jack-off clinic and give them a sperm sample. We don't care how you get the money as long as you give it to us. Want a t-shirt? Want a sticker or a mug to show that you're a true friend and a member of the Rant Army? Well, guess what? Go to Rant Army Surplus. The link is in the description. And if you don't buy something, then fuck you. Ran Army, pack your sleeping bag, grab your map, head into the woods, because tonight we have an in-depth retrospective for 1983's favorite camp slasher, Sleepaway Camp. Growing up, I spent my fair amount of time in the Boy Scouts, and I know good and well that it's not safe to go camping alone. But never fear, because we're implementing the tried-and-true buddy system this episode, so without further ado, it is with great pleasure I announce... My co-host, the Wizard of Wild Turkey, the General of Gin himself, your favorite alcoholic and mine, Fat Tony! Hey, I'm so glad to be here ready to talk about this movie. Uh, I watched it yesterday with a scientifically measured amount of alcohol in my system to give me the optimum appreciation for this uh, 80s camp classic. Uh, Speaking of alcohol, we have already consumed and we're ready to hit the ground running, so let's do so. Sleepaway Camp was released November 18th, 1983 on a super low budget of $350,000. That is fucking low. Now, just last night, independent of this, I was watching the behind-the-scenes documentary about the making of The American Office. And so for the sake of perspective, I'm going to educate you on how little money this actually is. So there's an episode of The Office where Jim proposes to Pam. It's the, you know, the big through line. This is yeah. a big moment of the series. And he does so in the pouring rain in front of a gas station. Now, rather than just film in front of an actual gas station, they built the facade of a gas station. They used rain machines. They hired stunt drivers to drive back and forth to make this look like a, you know, give it the illusion of a busy intersection. The cost of all this Roughly $300,000 for one shot in a television show. Now, adjusted for inflation, it's not really a one-to-one ratio, but I just wanted to kind of paint a picture of how low the budget on this. In 2021 money, uh, $350,000 comes to $938,442. That's still probably the, the cost of one episode of The Office. Yeah, it's incredibly low. Oh, yeah. Incredibly low. The box office was an estimated $11 million. Now, adjusted for inflation in 2021 money, that comes to $29,493,915. The slasher boom was in full effect, but actually it was starting to wane. So if this had come out a year earlier, 
it, the box office could have been even higher. Well, you say the slasher thing was starting to wane in 83. It was going through a trough, a backup. Well, because, the, the first wave. Yeah, the was first coming. wave was coming down. Okay, yeah. That's a hell of a return on investment, though. Absolutely. And it kind of goes to show you that, you know, during that time, all you needed was a little bit of money and you could, you could, you know, seed something and it would sprout, you know, a huge franchise. And Sleepaway Camp was almost <laughs> able to do that. Yeah. Almost. Well, we'll cover the, the sequels and stuff as we continue on. Um, if you had to take a guess, what do you think the IMDb rating is this? Oh, God. IMDb rating. And this is out of 10 or 5? Out of 10. 3.5 out of 10. 6.3. Oh, a little that's, higher. That's little surprising. Higher. Rotten Tomatoes, what do you think? 60. 78%. Damn. But you're closer with the audience score. They have it at a 60%. I can't believe... What the hell is with these past few movies we've done having higher tomato meters that, than fucking audience scores? Well, listen. The Rotten Tomatoes doesn't fucking matter. It doesn't it's, matter, it's, it's, but... It's, it's, it's stupid. It's a, it, the, the way they do things now, like the aggregator score, is skewed a little more in favor of... Uh, critics rather than the regular, you know, yeah. you know, run-of-the-mill person on the internet. But still, I find that strange. And I think over time, people have reevaluated Sleepaway Camp from probably what it was reviewed as at the time. Metacritic has it at a 58% out of 100. What do you think Google users have it at? Oh, at least 90. At 90 on the fucking Hell dot. Hell yeah, it's Google users. And Shudder has it at a 4.3 out of 5. Now, speaking of Shudder, the authority on all things exploitation, our god, lord, and savior, Joe Bob Briggs, gives, gives Sleepaway Camp a 3.5 out of 4 stars. Now, half a star was deducted. I'll explain in just a moment. But first, we have to come to the only score that actually matters, and that is our Rant Army review. Ooh. In the Facebook group, I posted a, a, a comment asking, Sleepaway Camp good, Sleepaway Camp bad. What do you think our brethren out there in the Rant Army read? I'm going to hope, because there are a lot of people online, and 85. You're close, 83%. Okay, I mean, I get... Let me say this right off the rip. This is not a good movie. The reason... I, there's great elements, and I love the well, cheese of it. Let's not give away the... We'll, I won't we'll, spoil the twist, yeah, but we'll, we're, if, if not for the last shot of the movie, this would have been completely forgotten. I, I'm going to 90% agree with that statement. There, I think there are a couple of things that we're going to discuss as we Sexy go Sexy male crop tops. <laughs> exactly. 100%. Yes. Joe Bob says, check it out. Yes. Okay, on Fat Tony's hit list, we have... 12. Which averages to one kill every 7.8 minutes. This movie balances the kills pretty well. It's it's consistent throughout the film. Well, there's let's not be really fair, a there, there's, there's a the slow build, and then at the end, it's like the last 10 minutes of the movie is when they really fucking hit you with that. And I like that. And yeah, it is not slow. There are kills throughout, and the one who should have died actually lives. Uh, we're, we're yeah, oh, I got a lot of notes on him. We're definitely going to talk about that. But I'm saying that the you know the the consistency of the kills yeah. is fairly spread out through the movie, and there are a lot at the end. But I mean, it's a slasher movie. Hell yeah, you got, you got to go big at the end. Third act, you know, you've got to kind of cram, you know, all the bodies you can in there. So. 
On Stank Dick Eddie's Titty Tally, we have a goose egg. However, there is tons of bare male ass in this movie. I, I took note of how many. Oh, please, fill us in. Okay, because I even said in my notes on my phone, um, need an ass count. Nine so far with the skinny dipping scene. After the skinny dipping scene, because you have the sit up. And then the eight guys that go skinny dipping. And we have other male nudity, too. Yes, one mangled dick. Thank you, Felissa Rose, for the introduction to this episode. And we're definitely going to be talking about her as we continue on. And the confused crush I had on her at, like, 11 when I saw the movie at first. <laughs> and then the end, I'm like, oh, my God, am I gay? <laughs> and the answer is maybe. <laughs> maybe. We're all gay sometimes. You look at Ryan Riddles and tell me you're not. <laughs> So, have at it, ladies. There's a ton of, you know, there's a whole buffet of man meat for you. In fact, in doing my research, I came across a quote from our Lord and Savior, Joe Bob Briggs, that sums up the plethora of bulges on display pretty well. Male camp counselors wearing gym shorts so tight, they look like a saran wrap on a hot dog. <laughs> yes. That was another note I took of all the short shorts that all the men are wearing and their crop tops. Yes, it is. This We're is, bringing it. We, we need to bring back the male crop top. <laughs> I have the perfect gut for it. You know, just cover up my man tits. It is very much an 80s look, but I think we're we're right on the cusp of this becoming, you know, the, the fashion trend of maybe not this year, but 2022, definitely crop tops for males. Hell yes. All right. Despite... Sleepaway Camp's lack of breast, it makes up more than enough in Carnage, but it wasn't the only genre film seeking box office supremacy. So let's check out the 1983 Stiff Competition. Fat Tony, if you'd be so kind to read out our genre films of 1983. We have Amityville 3D, Piece of Dog Shit by Early Meg Ryan. Lamberto Baba's A Blade in the Dark. That's one of my, actually, no joke aside, that's one of my favorite movies he did. Boogeyman 2. I vaguely remember Chained Heat. John Carpenter's Christine. Curtains. Cujo. The Deadly Spawn. David Cronenberg's The Dead Zone. The Final Terror. Frightmare. The Hunger. Jaws 3D. Mausoleum. Microwave Massacre. I haven't seen that, and now I know what I've got to track down today. <laughs> it's, a, it's a shot on shittio film. And oh, it I lives love up it. to its reputation. Mortuary should be a double feature with Mausoleum. Uh, they are almost the same. Movie. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Mountaintop Motel Massacre of unknown origin. I, I like that. Movie. Peter Weller, good yeah. movie. Psycho Two, fucking one of the Ter- best sequels terrific, of all time. Terrific. Sledgehammer. I only know that because of Joe Bob. Thank you, Joe Bob. <laughs> all hail. Something wicked this way comes. Sweet Sixteen and David Cronenberg's Videodrome. Probably my favorite Cronenberg movie. Now, before we get into it, I, I I just watched Sweet Sixteen for the first time on Tubi on a random lark. Uh, fairly recently in this past couple of months, and it's a pretty decent slasher movie if you've never seen it. So this gets the seal of approval uh, from Brandon. Go I'll check, it, check out. it out. So if you had to look at this list that you just uh, See, read is... out, where do you think is no, Sleepaway Camp in the top no, five? No, it's not in the top five at all. Or right, uh, what do you think is number one? I mean, those are... 
a bunch of like weird low budget. I don't see any mega hits. Maybe Jaws 3D or you might be on track for something. Uh, Coming in at number five, we have David Cronenberg's The Dead Zone, uh, which grossed twenty million seven hundred and sixty six thousand six hundred and sixteen dollars. Coming at number four, we have John Carpenter's Christine with twenty one million seventeen thousand another Stephen King adaptation. That's correct. Number three. Cujo <laughs> with twenty one three for three so far twenty one million one hundred and fifty six thousand one hundred and fifty two dollars coming at number two we have Psycho two with thirty four million seven hundred and twenty five thousand dollars and number one you called it Jaws three D with eighty seven million nine hundred eighty seven thousand and fifty five dollars. See, I'm not mad about that one like I was with Jaws four because Jaws three D is not a good movie. But I, on vacation with my grandma in Ocracoke Island, got to see Jaws 3 and Friday the 13th 3 in 3D at like a big outdoor event. And I could see the charm. Yeah, I Friday the 13th 3 in actual 3D, the anaglyphic 3D, not the red and the blue 3D. That's my holy grail viewing experience. And uh, shout out to Shack, uh, Shout Factory that gave us the excellent Blu-ray editions. Here's the problem. I don't have a Blu-ray capable television, nor do I have a Blu-ray player that is 3D capable, so it is still without my grasp, but I'm calling to you out there. If you are capable of showing this, show it to me, and I will buy you a fucking t-shirt, Rants in the Black Lodge, rantarmy.com. That's my gift to you for you helping me experience the, the movie of my dreams in the third dimension. Sleepaway Camp was a financial success despite it mostly flying under the radar of mainstream audiences. That being said, Sleepaway Camp's DNA was spliced together by an NYU film graduate turned mad scientist. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's figure out how we got to this point. Let's go from page to screen. Now, Sleepaway Camp's story is not much different than a good deal of the slashers that came out before it, so... To give you a refresher, I thought it might be beneficial for us to hit the highlights of the history of the genre. Now, general consensus is that the slasher genre was birthed with the release of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho and the equally unnerving and super underappreciated Peeping Tom in oh, 1960. However, the case could probably be made that films going back to the 20s and 30s like The Cat and the Canary and The Old Dark House could be classified as slashers, but... Um, they didn't become the popular vernacular of, you know, what yes. a slasher movie until like the mid, early 70s. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Black Christmas, Halloween, and finally exploding into the mainstream, we have 1980s Friday the 13th. Uh, there had been a clear formula to take a low-budget film and turn a huge profit from it for years, but Friday the 13th completely changed the game. So between 1980 and 1982, we saw the first huge boom in low-budget slasher films. So let's, let's, let's break it down. Prom Night, He Knows You're Not Alone, The Burning, Terror Train, The Fog, New Year's Evil, My Bloody Valentine, The Burning, Friday the 13th Part 2, Halloween 2, Madman, The Fun House, Slumber Party Massacre, Alone in the Dark, yada, yada, yada. You get the point I'm trying to make. The slasher genre would ebb and flow throughout the decade, but the first commercially successful wave of the 80s, it kind of died out pretty quickly in a mainstream sense. Uh, but the genre never took a break, which finally brings us to the writer and director of Sleepaway Camp, Robert Hiltzik. 
Now, he had this to say about the conception of the film. The genesis of Sleepaway Camp was I really, uh, I was in film school at NYU. I wanted to make a movie. It occurred to me that the most commercial form of film at the time and the easiest to sell would be a horror film. I figured out one location, which was the camp, of course, and it needed a kick-ass ending. More of that does. Now, as a kid, Robert Hiltzik actually attended the very camp that they filmed Sleepaway Camp That's at. That's cool. And after rewatching the movie uh, this past week, it's pretty clear that he had an affinity for camp beyond horror-related elements. Did you ever attend camp as a kid? I did, but uh, with the caveat that it was a Seventh-day Adventist Christian summer camp. That sounds fucking terrible. What was I it did like? get to throw some tomahawk. It was during the daytime hours... Like the most boring camming. There was canoeing. There was fun stuff. I'm not going to completely shit on them, but then there's church service and, oh, let's have Bible quizzes. At night, that was the first time in my life I ever smelled what marijuana smelled like. <laughs> um, I saw my first in-person tit there. Hell yeah. I wasn't part of that. I was 11. I lost my virginity a year later at 12. This was just 11 then. <laughs> Uh, like at night, these little unsupervised, poorly supervised demons, like I wouldn't have been shocked if somebody died of a drug overdose there. Cause again, you take all these Christian kids, you repress them, give them a crack. But yeah, no, the day to day, there was the canoeing. I got to throw tomahawks. We just had like, we had no free time like these kids do to wonder and stuff. Our, our free time, if there was free time, it's Bible quiz and let's have a Bible play and yeah, um, I, I told my parents I was never going back. Yeah, it sounds it sounds terrible. I, I went to Boy Scout camp as a kid for quite a few years, and I've always made the analogy that um, meatballs is the reason I wanted to go to camp, and Friday the 13th is the reason I never <laughs> went back. That's actually not true. The real story is when I was at Boy Scout camp, we went whitewater rafting. Me and my cousin, uh, Scott, we got stuck up on a rock, and so he and I being, you know, like, we're going to be the saviors of this trip. We hop out of the rock. We push the ramp, uh, the ramp, the raft. raft out. He hops back on and then they just <laughs> scoot on out. And they made a big point to us saying, like, make sure that you take the left at the fork because the right fork was the, the high water raft, you know, the rafter. What am I talking about? Uh, white water. White water raft. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, fuck. What's the word Difficulty, I'm looking for? Difficulty. No. Uh, rapids. Rapids, that's what, that's yes. What I'm looking for. The rapids were too harsh, and I was like, well, I'm going to die. So I sat on this raft, like, basically coming to terms with my, you know, my my short life. I'm, you know, like 11, 12 at the time. And uh, they had to go all the way up, back up the river, and back down to be able to get me. So, oh, I bet that was several hours of just great fun. Oh, I cried. I cried like a little bitch. I would too. And it was it was it was terrific uh, character building, <laughs> albeit unintentional for what they with what they were you know wanting it to be. How do you think uh, from an authentic scale? How authentic is Sleepaway Camp to the camp actually? Experience? Well, I mean, some of those things I get, but again, this is a secular and. Where does this take place? Like, all the kids are assholes. And, like, some of the counselors are even psychotic. Like, why are you talking? You crazy bitch. And all this shit. So, I don't know. It seems there is a good bit. The, the kids seem authentic. It seems like this it does. But, again, my experience is, you know, as much as I'll shit on that Christian, they, 
It wasn't a bunch of psychopathic animals. I don't remember anybody get we shaving cream one of those kids like they do in the movie. Well, that's actually the point I was going to make next. Um, the, the camp pranks, which I think is one of the benefits of the movie, is that even though it's a slasher movie, they still try and kind of throw in like the the, the camp stuff that makes it quintessentially camp. Yes. Uh, the shaving cream and the, the, the character, char- the character of Mozart. Uh, Poor the, Mozart. Yeah, he he kind of gets the uh, the railroad, but he doesn't get killed. So no, I guess he... his summer is a lot better than there some of these go. people. But yeah, he gets the hand, uh, the sh- shaving cream in the hand, and they tickle him, and he sticks it in his face. And well, isn't he also the one that does a sit up into the ass? Yes, yes, he is. Uh, um, that's funny, and that's the type of thing. Had I known about that at a tender age of eleven or twelve, I absolutely would have tried. To oh, hundred percent. <laughs> That's just good stuff. Um, I love the camp setting in movies. Um, Friday the 13th is the obvious one that kind of comes to mind. Um, so we got to kind of address one of the first many elephants in the room. When it comes to Sleepaway Camp, uh, you know, like 1983, where the film was released, coincidentally coincides with one of only two years in the entirety of the 1980s where there wasn't a Friday the 13th <laughs> film. Of the, one of the continuing uh, criticisms of Sleepaway Camp is that it sort of borrows very heavily from Friday the 13th. Is Sleepaway Camp a ripoff of Friday the 13th, or is it just a slasher movie? There is a little bit of the ripoff element with the first person perspective, of the original movie, going to first person perspective during some of the kills, some of the music. But again, this is just thing, it's, it's like... 15% 15% a ripoff, 85%. It's a fucking camp slasher movie. You're not, you're going to have similarities no matter what you do. And I think some of that is just because when people make these criticisms, it's because, oh, it's at a camp and their people are getting killed. But really, the slasher genre as a whole was so I, new that you couldn't help but. Yeah, but I mean, the first person's perspective, which you called out, I mean, you go back to Halloween and um, Black Christmas. It's it's a staple of the genre. You're right. I you know I'll backtrack on that some some the music some of the music during the suspense scenes is straight up Harry Manfredini ripoff. Speaking of, speaking of the music, do, do you think that it goes a, a tad bit too bombastic at points? I was I made a note during the opening credits. It's going fucking bananas. Like the music is going fucking bananas. <laughs> this is too much. The um, the camp setting is an obvious parallel to Friday Thirteenth, but I think Sleepaway Camp bears more similarities to a few other slasher films um, that I mentioned just a few minutes ago when we were doing the rundown of the history of. But Psycho, Peeping Tom, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, what do these movies all have in common? A psychosexual element to the character. I just caught... (laughs) I didn't know how much spoiler territory you If any of these movies aren't ringing a bell, I'm being comparative, uh, but they all have this psychosexual element to them with killers. As we continue with the retrospective, we'll tackle the twist of the film, which really hammers home this point. Um, but first, got to talk a little bit about Robert Hiltzik, the director of Sleepaway Camp. Sleepaway Camp is his major claim to fame, but he did return several years later to return to direct Return of Sleepaway Camp, which I'm glad exists, but it hasn't really left much of a you know mark on the world of cinema Despite Robert not pursuing directing beyond a couple of Sleepaway Camp films, he 
he has had a huge impact on his life just you know doing the first movie because that's how he met his wife Missy. She was one of the producers on the film and Robert is now a lawyer and is very successful, but he's always going to be the director of Sleepaway Camp to us here oh, at yeah, the podcast. Oh yeah, the day does. Now, I'm going to pepper Robert's comments throughout the retrospective, but first, Fat Tony, if you'd be so kind to read the synopsis for the film we're here to talk about today, 1983's Sleepaway Camp. Ooh. After a terrible boating accident killed her family, shy Angela Baker, Felisa Rose, Felicia... Felissa. Felissa. Yeah, I said it right the first Went to live with her eccentric Aunt Martha. That's an understatement. And her cousin, Ricky. This summer, Martha decides to send them both to Camp Camp Arawak. Sorry, that liquor's working. A place to enjoy the great outdoors. Shortly after their arrival, a series of bizarre and violent accidents begins to claim the lives of various camp uh, campers. Has a dark secret returned to the camp from the camp's past, or will, or will an unspeakable horror in? I'm sorry, it might have been. Has a dark secret returned from the camp's past, or will an a dark an unspeakable horror? <laughs> you put and instead of an. I'm not wrong. I'm this fu- isn't out. I'm fucking fallible. Sorry. Yes. How dare you? Unspeakable horror in the summer season for all, from its grisly makeup effects to its truly shocking and unforgettable climax. Sleepaway Camp is no ordinary slasher film. It's a cult classic. Sorry for that stumbling, folks. <laughs> Brandon is fallible, and I'm a little buzzed. So. I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty buzzed myself. Uh, the last sentence of the synopsis perfectly leads us to our next topic, and that is of the Academy Award-nominated special effects legend Ed French. Now he's had a long career. He did Amityville Two, Blood Rage, Creepshow Two, Star Trek Six. Terminator 2 with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was in Twins, which was directed by Ivan Reitman, who was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted. Was he in Ghostbusters, or did he direct Ghostbusters? Yeah, yeah, you, you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> now, listen, we're going to cover French's, uh, Mr. French's special effects work on Sleepaway Camp in depth when we go to our victim section. But first, we have to talk about specifically one of the most visually stunning FX works of this film, and really of any of the genre at the time, uh, it just happens to be juxtaposed with one of Sleepaway Camp's more unsettling aspects, and that being the character of Artie. The role of Artie is played by a man named Owen Hughes. Now, by all accounts, Owen was a great guy, but the character of Artie is a despicable pedophile. Here's my note I took at the time in all cap. Fucking baldies? What the fuck? You don't (laughs) laugh off a pedophile. You kill them. (laughs) When, when When the kids arrive at Camp Arawak, the character of Artie is established immediately as a creep and... We kind of, where I come from, we call them baldies. Creep creep at best, a complete pedophile at the worst. And yes, his line is, look at all that young, fresh chicken. Where I come from, we call them baldies. This is funny for about two seconds until you realize, oh, fuck. He's talking about fucking kids. Now, three days in, the character of Angela, played by Felissa Rose, has, has she hasn't ate anything, which leads Ronnie to take her to the pantry to see if there's anything that she actually will Side eat. note, Ronnie's the only decent good counselor there is. He never does anything. He doesn't mean to leave her with a pedophile. He's only nice. But at the same time, 
This guy is not even fucking hiding his predilection for, no. for desires of young children. So I, I don't. I Ronnie don't, might not have known. The other cook assistant, who I have a note about him later, we, we, we'll, we'll talk. He about did. Uh, unfortunately, Ronnie does make a huge error yeah. in judgment in leaving Angela in the care of Artie, who takes the opportunity of a secluded area plus a quiet girl who's you know not said a word at camp so far. To get his rocks off, thankfully Ricky intervenes and whisks Angela off to safety. Now later in the day, Artie is standing on a chair and he's boiling corn over a stove in a pot. No, no, I have a note about this. That is an impractical fucking pot. You need like a three foot ladle to get anything out of. <laughs> it is ridiculous. I mean, it's like a foot from the ceiling. It is, yeah, it is every bit of three, three and a half feet tall. You would have multiple, I mean, Jesus, that's a, I made a note, like, that's a fucking impractical pot. <laughs> you need a three-foot fucking ladle. So, impractical as it may be, um, a pair of small hands jerk the chair out from under him, the, the pot of boiling water comes down on him, and it burns Artie. So... Number one, I want to talk about how controversial it is just to have a pedophile character in a movie at all, let alone a slasher film in 1983. kind of played for laughs at that first scene, because the other assistant cook, he's shocked and even says, they're so young, they wouldn't even know what you're talking about. They don't know to worry about guys like you. And then just kind of laughs it off. Like, oh, okay, this guy's going to try to fuck again. No, you don't laugh it off. You immediately, if not kill them, report them. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I've seen this movie a million times. times, And this was a constant VHS rental back in the day. And I I don't even know as a kid I was even familiar with the... The idea of what a pedophile even was. So this was just playful banter. And when they get to the scene where he's undoing his pants, I'm not I'm not making this up. The only correlation I had was when Ray, Ray gets the ghost blowjob in <laughs> in Ghostbusters, and I am not making this up. My I can't remember if it was my aunt or my grandmother, but one of them made the the statement like, "Oh look, they're giving him a be- they're giving him kisses on his belly," and and I got and I thought that was the funniest thing. So I'm thinking like she's going to ask this little girl to give him kisses on his belly. I didn't understand, but as an adult, holy fuck, this is dark. I have a okay. When I saw this movie, I was around between 10 and 11 maybe just turned 12 and so it was age appropriate i had a crush on felicia like she's cute so it did and i knew what fucking was so it didn't <laughs> seem weird that somebody would want to fuck her it didn't occur to me yeah this is i, I in my head I'm like, oh he's old but i'm like i get it bro now <laughs> <laughs> So it didn't hit me as like evil. Well, I mean, I knew it was wrong, but I'm like, because, uh, but more because she's disturbed and he's going to rape, not the age. The age thing didn't enter. Watching as an adult, I think of the first time it really hit me. I was like 15 when I ran. I'm like, this is fucked up. Like, this is the most fucked, even more fucked up than the end. In- Reveal at the end that this is the most fucked up thing in the movie. Listen, we have no sympathy for Artie. He definitely no. gets what he deserves. Uh, what he did was absolutely wrong. His pedophilia can't 
come as too much of a su- surprise, however, to his co-workers. The pedophilic things Artie says throughout the beginning of the movie are sort of waved off as a joke by Ben, the other camp counselor, or camp cook, who is played by Robert Earl Jones, who, I don't know if you're familiar with this, is the father of James Earl Jones, who was in Conan the Barbarian with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was in Junior, which was directed by Ivan Reitman. You just got busted again. But he also has a little dialogue that you hinted on a little before that just adds to the whole grossness of it. They're too young to even understand what's on your mind. Oh, yeah, that's the line, yes. Um, Yeah, that's all fucked. I do have, um, hold on, we'll get to the aftermath. Um, One thing I did like, though, is he doesn't die, but the doctor or ambulance people, they just talk about how much pain he has to be in. And I think this is the first time I really appreciated that he didn't die and that he was suffering. Well, that's that brings me to my next question. Uh, the worst character doesn't die. Should he have should he have died? By horror movie logic, I'm always going to say yes. But, I mean, I, I think this past time I come to accept that, yes, their answer was just make him suffer. But at the same time, I'm like... Are they just like, oh, he's suffering, but, you know, he doesn't deserve to die. He's just boys will be boys kind of attitude. Or, no, he lives in agony. Let him suffer. I honestly don't know, but I do have... Are you going to talk about how much money the guy offers the cook and the assistants to go, shut up? Go ahead with that. I did a... He offers him 50 more dollars a week. I did some... Assuming it was filmed in 83, it probably filmed in 82. I don't know. In 1983 money, $50 extra a week was worth $135.18 extra a week. Damn right, I'll shut up. <laughs> and the and the Fat Tony can be bought. Fat Tony has a price. You damn right. $15 extra a week is still the equivalent of $40.54. Wow. So, I mean, this camp must be making fucking money if, and I have a note about the camp owner, he looks like the love child of a mobster and a frog. He's dressed just like, um, fuck, uh, Roddy Dangerfield's character from um, Caddyshack. Fuck yeah! Like, we'll, we'll come. We'll come yes. back to Mel as we continue on. Uh, the other aspect of this is the people who turned a blind eye to the things Artie have said. They get off scot-free. Yeah, Ben just, but Ben sees him get, the girl get dry. He's just cooking in the background. I'm minding my own business. Do you think they should have been killed? I think the whole kitchen staff, no, him and the dude should have faced some consequences, but his inaction, him allowing that girl to go back there into the cooler or wherever the fuck with the fucking cook. Yeah, by horror movie logic, he should die. But, you know, $50 extra a week, more power to you, buddy. <laughs> well, congratulations, Ben, on your on your promotion. Yeah. I hope it's worth the sleepless nights you should have knowing that... Uh, hey, she didn't get molested, so, I mean, there's a silver line in the cloud. Yeah, but how many other kids? That's the other thing, like... This could be the... the this is like... Three days in, he probably hasn't had time to groom anybody. This yeah, was but served previ- to him. previous years, because it's not, it's not implied. He might that he's- not have known about previous years, because he made that joke, and the guy made the uncomfortable. They don't even know to be. I think he's too cavalier with his comments for this to be a, uh, a like a first time comment. This guy has to be comfortable with them saying that's that true. Kind of stuff. They all need to die. 
I agree. Everyone should have died in this movie. Everyone but the kids. Everyone. Okay, well, we'll definitely cross that bridge. There's some kids that should. And you know what? I'm going to say Ricky should have been one of them, too. Oh, fuck. That's a hot take. All right, all right. I'll get to it. We'll get to it. Dead or Alive, the effect is incredible, and a lot of that goes to Ed French. The effect was achieved, and I'm speaking about Owen's face. Um, That was uh, like liquid gelatin. And they took air bladders to create this like bubbling skin effect. Considering the budget of the film, they really utilized what they had properly because now this would be all CGI and it'd be post production and they'd spend, you know, thousands of dollars, but this is like a, a twenty dollar effect and it's very d- done done very well. Considering how low the budget was, the effects in this movie are all pretty good. Yeah. I mean, some of the stuff is left to the imagination, but the things that you actually see on screen, they're they're all top-notch effects. So, a lot of that goes to Ed French. So, we we salute you here at the Ransom of the Black Lodge podcast. Sleepaway Camp holds an interesting place in horror history where its protagonist is also the antagonist. Yeah. Come to find out. Spoiler alert. We'll talk about that as we continue on. Um, the, the acting feat that... Many seasoned professionals would have a hard time portraying on screen of being both, you know, lovable and, 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 you know, menacing at the same time. The revelation only makes the performance all the more impressive when you take into consideration that our lead was only 13 years old. We have Felissa Rose as Angela Baker, who would become to be known as the Angel of Death. She's in several things in the past, you know, 10, 15 years. She's a hardworking actress. We'll hit the highlights. Tales of Halloween, uh, Victor Crowley, Death House, and just so many, so many things. Mangled dick expert on Ma- Joe Bob Briggs. Mangled dick expert on Joe Bob Briggs, um, which I think that's when you know you've made it. When you Hell are yeah. acknowledged with, from Joe Bob Briggs, that's when you have cemented yourself into the, you know, the legacy of of the genre. Exactly. Uh, she's she's as synonymous with horror now as, you know, is Robert England, Vincent Price, or like anybody, you know, on down the line. Absolutely. Now, we're going to hold off on the obvious point of discussion with the Angela character till the very end. But twist aside, there's something really special about Felissa Rose. She's able to convey vulnerability and a menace at the same time. Now, from what Felissa has said over the years, it wasn't hard for her to achieve her iconic sort of catatonic state because she had this to say about her character. As a child, you really do have a great imagination. So I took it in, and they said so many horrible things to me that I actually wanted to fucking kill them. <laughs> method method acting. So what do you think about Felissa's performance? I think it's great. There's sometimes when she's just kind of sitting there quiet, that even when I was young, I got to her eyes are too wide. Like... Leave this bitch alone. She's crazy. Is what I'm wanting to tell these other asshole bitches who get what they deserve, <laughs> for the most part. Uh, but like, no, she does great. Like, the only thing that ever like jarred me or, or showed me about the performance is when she does act normal like a teenage girl with her little love, her little crush. You know, it's just hey, okay, let's you know whatever. She's talking normal. It's there's not like that big of a gap except the one good night, you know, when she like tries to tell him good night. But no, I fucking loved loved her performance in this movie. Yeah, I think I think she she adds a air a 
a layer of relatability. Yeah. And obviously, neither one of us were teenage girls. We don't know girls, what it's like to be a teenage girl. So we're from, strictly from a perspective of, you know, over 30 white men uh, can give 40. this. Okay, over 40. Yeah. I, I still have a couple of years before I hit that point. Your baby. <laughs> I know. I'm still suckling at the teat. Hey, um, I live with three teenage girls, so I get a little bit of their... I'm not ever... No, I, I will never know the whole... And living with them makes me realize I will never know the horror of being a teenage girl, and I'm grateful every day that I was not a teenage now, girl. I, I didn't actually have this in my notes, but you brought up an interesting point. Have any of your teenage daughters seen Sleepaway Camp? Sadie. And what like, did she think about she it? She likes it. She's got she got tastes very similar to mine. Just on a quick side note, the other weekend being Father's Day, I actually called in because that's how old I am. I pulled a muscle coughing, <laughs> and it really hurt too bad to get to work. So I'm like, fuck it. I got the points. Well, I made them watch Psycho Goreman with me. So good. So and good. they fucking loved it because I'm right. I don't try to make them watch movies I know they'll hate, but yes. But no, like Sadie's seen it and... One or the other, you know, Evelyn might have seen it, but it's no, they're not going to remember anything. Sadie would know. Yeah, I remember. That's the one with the blah 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 at the well, end. Well, shout out, shout out to, to Sadie. Who? No, oh, I won't say. It makes everything seem biased. But anyway, <laughs> one of the major factors, in my opinion, of why this movie succeeds where other films at the time may <clears throat> have failed is its casting. Now, I'm not going to lie to you and say that Sleepaway Camp has above and beyond great acting by any means, especially considering, you know, its contemporaries, other slasher films of the day. But the simple fact that it cast, its cast is so young, adds a level of realism to this movie that, like, Friday the 13th and the other films don't have. A point that Robert Hiltzik was... Very keen on hammering home. He had this to say about casting kids. Horror movies at the time were using actors that are 18, 19, 20 years old to play 13 and 14 years old. I wanted to take 13 and 14 year old kids and have them play kids. Now, I'm not a parent. However, Tony, you are. Now, over the years, Sleepaway Camp has come under fire for its uh, sensitive subject matter. I guess it's a way, a nice way of putting it. Um, and here... We're going to tackle the twist when we get to it, but we're 10 minutes in and we've already got a pedophile. Do you see Sleepaway Camp as being exploitative of its young cast, or especially with Felissa Rose, or, you know, is it par for the course? You know, I mean, I, I, I tried to find out how old the actress of Judy was, because this is a thought that was in my head. I couldn't find out her age. I found something on Reddit that said she was 38 when she... I know that's a lie. No. Somebody even commented, like, are you fucking... You know, bad words? Not very PC bro kind of language? Because then the, the same person also said, also said Felicia Rose was 19, and this person like, no, she was 13. But uh, of any of the actresses who were playing a specifically underage character, Judy, who I don't think was underage, if you look... I don't think they had, she probably 18, 19, no older than that. But that would be the only one who I might say had been exploited. Like there's some, you know, rough scenes we'll, with Ricky. We'll, we'll, cover, we'll cover why Yeah, <laughs> as we continue on. Yeah, I, well, not even, not even that. Like, you know, she's using her sexuality, making out with boys and doing all this stuff that I wouldn't feel comfortable with my underage child doing. There's also underage boy ass in her in the setup. Yeah. Like they're straight up. It's not sexualized, so it's fine, but... It's funny because this movie wasn't a SAG film, but it actually did use some SAG after a 
actors for extras yeah. and stuff. So, and it was young people making a movie sort of on the fly, and I got the impression that these kids were sort of left into their own. In fact, the the only parental supervision that these kids had at all was Felissa Rose's mother, who was on set. Otherwise, they were just kind of left into their own devices, and you know they're they're doing you know. Well, that's more of a statement on their parents than anything. I I agree, but at the same time, like this would this type type of behavior would only happen behind closed doors for a certain sliver of like a list kid actors back in the day, and this other stuff would totally not be tolerated. Um, I'm not saying necessarily in front of the camera, but the behind the camera exploits like the, these kids were unsupervised and, you know, Hollywood is very, very hands on with that type of stuff. Exactly. Hands on. Yes. Thank Adrenochrome, you. Adrenochrome and the Hollywood elites. <laughs> Trust the plant. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> Harvey in, Weinstein. Now that's a real threat. Yes. Yes. Unlike is. the QAnon conspiracy. Anyway, but no, like the only, only young actor, I feel I, I might have been uncomfortable. Like, did the girl playing Judy? Like, oh, I'm in bikinis, making out with boys, okay. exploiter sexuality. Well, but we'll, we'll we'll talk about it as we continue on because there's yeah. one specific thing that was suggested for Felissa Rose that thankfully got shot down. I think would have probably tipped this over the line into mm-hmm. uh, into See, dangerous. I, don't know. Areas. I know there's even a documentary about it, but I haven't seen. So well, I'm, we'll, I'm we'll, excited to learn with the audience. We will talk about it as we continue on. Consistent, consistently, Felissa Rose and the other cast members have said their experience was mostly positive on the set, and they don't really have any lasting negative effects. That being said, after Felissa made the movie, she had to change schools, and she stopped acting altogether because she was bullied. I mean, I can, I can kind of, I don't, I'm not saying why, but I mean, yeah, the shit, yeah. The negative aspects of being in sleepaway camp started pretty much from the beginning. She had this to say about the first time she saw the film. The first time I saw the film, when I took my entire eighth grade class to a local theater. <gasps> oh, no. The, the theaters were packed because I was like, I'm the local girl and I'm making her film debut and it was a big deal in my town. That final shot, I was paralyzed in my chair. It was probably the first time I'd seen the penis. We're still going to hold on to the twist until we get there. Um, the negative, thankfully, didn't last long. And if not for Sleepaway Camp, Felissa, she she would have never probably gotten the opportunities that she's gotten both That's in true. film, but also in her personal life. She she met her husband specifically because of making Sleepaway Camp. He did everything he could. He wore my face on a t-shirt of the first episode of Jackass. I saw it and I thought, who the fuck is that? He was adorable. He got into a band. He put my face on his guitar and on his CD. And finally, his manager called me and said, can you meet him somewhere? So he flew out on the set of Return of Sleepaway Camp, which was in probably like 2006, 2007. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Felissa is married to Darren Miller of CKY. I didn't know that. Um, they got. They decided they were going to get married the night they met each other. Now they had been conversing probably back and forth prior to that. 
But, man, that's crazy. And, I, I mean, no disrespect. I mean, obviously, they've made it work. They have kids together and they've continued on. But there's a part of me that thinks some of her is probably damaged because of being a child actor and maybe, and I'm taking a step outside of probably my bounds, that maybe, just maybe, the positive reinforcement of something that she had had negative aspects to probably led them to a bond that, you know... I mean, it's not a bad thing. I, I They've obviously made a, a lasting relationship that works. But when I met Felissa Rose, and I met her this past October, and she told me this story, and I, I joked with her, like, man, if I'd known it was this easy to get your attention, I would have done it. And she was like, oh, well, you're a cutie. It probably would have worked. And I'm like, well, let's, let's, let's see what happens. You want to cheat on your husband? I didn't say that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done that. But... I get the feeling that maybe, whether she's cognizant of it or not, maybe this movie has negatively impacted her in a way that has allowed her to... Or maybe she just found the man to give her the unconditional love and support she needed and deserves in her life. Oh, well, that, and if that's the case, then, then I highly, highly am happy for her. I'd but, have tattooed her face on me if that would have worked. But at the it? same time, you have to see the, the negative because yes. if, no, she, I, if she was hit hard, that hard as a kid. And when well, you said she saw that movie when her entire eighth grade class, a little bit of my soul died because I can't imagine the hell the after effects that would have. Can't yeah, do it. I, she's been overly positive about Sleepaway Camp. And and, I, and I'm not going to take that away from her. But at the same time, I'm just viewing it from my perspective of like the negative didn't go away. She's she's masked it, and she's been able to use this as a stepping stool to have a career. But I, 13, 14-year-old girl, I mean, that's a formative time in a girl's life when things like that can have major lasting implications. And I, and thankfully, you know, she's not dead from, like, drug overdose and, like, the, the perils that a lot of these teenage kids and child actors fall into. But I just, I, I have Ricky the feeling... Was, Ricky was... Her cut the actor who played her cousin Ricky, like he died doing a donkey show in Tijuana, Mexico. He's still alive, and we don't know if he does things with donkeys. We'll find out. <laughs> but uh, so many of these kids, whether whether you know they commit suicide or they have drug overdoses, I, I sometimes I feel like I don't know, and I just have an outsider perspective. And I'm just going off of the track record, but I don't think anybody gets out unscathed. Of, of the movie business at that early age. So we are very thankful and I don't want to paint a negative picture of Felissa because she is so She's fucking awesome. She is so nice. And both her mother and, and herself have said that she had nothing but positive experiences. But if you have to change schools, I think that is counter to what you're saying, at least to a point. I think I think there was a few years after that movie came out. I, I think you we might be building up in our head because there are a lot of negative. But then again, at the same time, this isn't like a you know a Drew Barrymore type star you know doing coke and getting drunk at eight or nine. This is yeah, it was a really horrifying experience after the fact watching it with your whole eighth grade class. 
Ah, you got a dick. You got... And listen, I don't have any proof to say that anybody in, she even in, in her eighth grade class was negative to her. I just know that going forward that she did have to change schools. So they may have all been... Maybe she was a stuck-up cunt and didn't want to be around the regular... I'm just playing. Oh, that was a joke. That was a joke. We true. love you. <laughs> um, Felissa would come back to the role that made her famous in 2008's Return to Sleepaway Camp. But she was keen to actually return to the role much sooner and auditioned for Sleepaway Camp 2. But she would ultimately lose the role out to Pamela Springsteen, who is the sister of Bruce Springsteen. Do you think... Sleepaway Camp 2 and 3 would have benefited from Felissa. Okay. As they're filmed, completely different beasts. And since it's been, I've known it so long, I can't see anybody but Springfield being... Spring, Springsteen. Springsteen. We had the same thing last episode. Springsteen. Pamela, Pamela Springsteen as Angela. I, I think and if they were to do it, I've done a more serious sequel... Less tongue-in-cheek, slasher, we're just killing for fun. I think Felissa would have been amazing. I want to say this. I, I don't think the original Sleepaway Camp is necessarily a scary movie. I do think it has good moments of yes. suspense. Sleepaway Camp 2 and 3 are near and dear to my heart, but they don't even attempt to be no, scary or they're suspenseful. comedies. They're horror comedies. And especially... The third the one. Third there, one. There's, a little, there's a little bit more trying to make it suspenseful in the second one. That's beside the point. I And I, I love Pamela Springsteen in the role, but I, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm kind of glad that Felissa did not do these movies. Oh, yeah. And um, real quick, what do you think about her return in Return of Sleepaway Camp? It was, I mean, it was okay. I watched it last night. I, honestly, I had not seen it until it was on Tubi. Big shout out to Tubi. It was a big deal for me when it came out, and uh, I I found it at a Target, like when it very first came out, because you know Walmart, none of the places around here had it, and I had to go all the way to Knoxville to Target to get it. And I wanted another Sleepaway Camp movie for Maybe. years, and I mean I'm glad it exists, but it, it definitely has not left much. Yeah, more. it's just is. Well, what do you think about the twist? The the twist of that movie is definitely not comparable to the twist no. of this movie where she's dressed as a sheriff or a deputy or something. And Yeah. Uh, I mean, we love you, Felissa, but um, we're glad, you, we're glad hey, you got to come back to the role. You're fucking amazing in Victor Crowley. That's probably, honestly, one of my... That's my second favorite thing she's ever done. Big, big ups to Adam Green. Now, Felissa is by and large the driving force behind what makes this movie work, but we also have a supporting cast that deserves at least a glance, starting with Sleepaway Camp's other uh, protagonist, that being Jonathan Tiersten as Ricky. Now, Jonathan had this uh, to say about the way he got into the acting business, sort of right out the gate. I got involved with acting sort of a, sort, sort of on a lark. BBD&O Advertising Company came to my high school to do a commercial. If it, it ended up being a Pepsi commercial with Gabe Kaplan, who worked as Mr. Cotter in Welcome Back, Cotter. And he was a hero of mine. At the very last minute, literally with five minutes to sign up, two of my friends dragged me into the principal's office, which was the last place I wanted to go. Long story short, I got it in the end. And when the whole high school auditioned, uh, he, Gabe Kaplan, looked at my mother and said, you know, 
your kid's a natural. And I looked at her and said, can I get an agent? Gabe Kaplan was right. I think Jonathan was a natural, and I think he could have had a much bigger career in acting as far as his role in Sleepaway Camp is concerned. I think he's pretty good. He's very natural. What do you think about uh, his performance? We are... Um... He's, he's, of all the other actors, he's the only other one I'll say, that's a good acting role. I don't think the like, the, the the script is necessarily good. No, the good. script's not, but he sells it. And yeah, he, he comes off as natural. But, um, Ricky should die. Hold, the character. Hold, hold that thought, um, because I, I have an interesting angle on this, and then we'll parlay, but, uh, do you, Ricky's purpose in the entire movie is to be used as the red herring for the oh, Yeah, killer. and they do it effectively. Like the hand, most effectively, right there off the rip with the pedo and the hand. I'm like, oh. Um, because of his similar build to Felissa, he was used as a stand-in for the killer. Uh, so anytime you see the killer's hands, it's Jonathan's. And the bait and switch, it works fine on VHS, but unfortunately in high def... I think this falls apart completely. Well, how dare they not predict technology <laughs> 30 years in the future? Um, so, the silhouette of him, when he's standing in the doorway right before Judy gets killed, on the Blu-ray, you can clearly see that it's him. I think this completely kills the entire mistake of who the killer is Unless, and hear me out on this, are there two killers in this movie? No. No. I just, because my hatred, you know, Ricky's like, oh, I got to protect my cousin. He seems so nice and all that. He knew what was going on. He just didn't want his secret to be found out. You know, his family secret and have his cozy little life of summer camps and cushy big houses taken. He is just as guilty. He is just as guilty as Angela. In fact, more so. And Angela was driven to madness. He just, oh, look at me. It works out for me. Well, obviously, from the point of view of the script, he is not. But, you know, a little headcanon. I'm I'm not gonna lie. After rewatching it with the perspective that there are two killers, some of this makes sense. Later on, when when Meg gets killed, and we'll talk about that when we get to our victims' uh, point, she's getting killed in the uh, by the shower stall, and then Ricky's on the other side of the camp, and so. I don't know. I, I think that you could maybe make the argument that both of them are killing. It's a nice online little theory that you read. You, I don't think so. Can in my head. It's Angela. I think the smartest thing they could have done that they didn't do in Return to Sleepaway Camp would have been the revelation that both of them were killing. Now, that would have been good, but that would have taken away the impact of what um, Mel, the, the camp owner, his little... <laughs> journey. I don't want to give it away, but like that scene always, even the first time I saw it, cracks me up. The, it, he's it, just, yeah, we'll, doing his thing. We'll, we'll talk about it. Um, Felissa considers Jonathan Tearson her first love. They actually had a fling as much as a you know 13-year-old girl can have a fling on, on they the They can set. have a fling, trust me. Well, by, her, the, by her own admission, there, there was, like little, there, you know, it was puppy, puppy yeah. love. 
Um, but she got her heart broken because Jonathan moved on to one of the actresses in the volleyball scene who had bigger breasts. That is literally that's, the, yeah. you know, when you're a, when you're a kid, that's, that, that makes a big difference. Um, because of her hurt feelings, uh, director Robert Hiltzik locked Felissa and Jonathan in a room and made them work their issues out. And thankfully they came out on the other end, you know, better for it. And as a thank you for them not derailing the entire filming, he took them out bowling. Um, however, after production, they would resume an off an on again off again relationship for several years. Now, put this in perspective: it's a different time, but she was thirteen, he was seventeen. But afterwards, that would make her fourteen and him eighteen. So it's, it's, I mean, then some states have a four year age limit thing where it's makes it fine. It's, ew. but, but by that point, he's 17 he's in that se- movie. He's 17. Okay. That's the best cat. Like I wouldn't bet you I'd 14 at most. Yeah. He looks, he looks he's young. A late bloomer. He's, he's got a small frame, but yeah, he was 17 at the time. I don't imagine you look like at 17. I looked like, like a 12. man. I was yeah. burly. <laughs> <laughs> it's not not entirely true. I st- I still look young. I've been told because if you shaved, you'd pass for like twenty easily. Thank you. Idea. Thank you. I appreciate that. See, now you're old enough where it doesn't piss you <laughs> off anymore. You're like, yes. Um, Jonathan has continued acting. You know, for a while he had some after school specials yeah. and stuff, but he ended up taking a huge sabbatical for several years. But over the years, he's made his return in Return to Sleepaway Camp yep. and is not only acting, but acting in the world of horror as of late. So we wish him much success. The sabbatical is um, another word, especially if it happens in the 80s, for Coke binge. Maybe possible. Now, now I want you to, to fill in the gaps. Why do you think... Jonathan's character of Ricky deserves because he is complicit in his crazy mother's scheme and the whole thing. That's why he is not protective out of the goodness of his heart. If he even took her aside for a second and been like, I know this is hard for you, but I'm here for you. Any kind. No, it's, I don't want my family's dark fucked up secret from my mother, who one of my favorite things I have a note. We'll probably talk about her best campy actress ever. And answers her own questions, which I love. But he doesn't want his life disturbed. He just sees it. He's never protected because I love her. He's protected like, oh, shit, you're throwing water balloons. Or, oh, you're going to put her in a Oh, be nice. Because I don't want my cushy life affected. So when when what happens to him happens, well, I, one of the justice. one of the unfortunate things is for whatever reason, I, I left Aunt Martha's actual name out of my notes. Uh, I will say this about her. Um, when she got her script pages, she was like, I can't do this. You need to replace me. And Robert Hiltick was like, no, you will read this fucking script. You will do this. So she said, fuck it, and went as camp and hammy as you could possibly go, and the movie is better for it. Yeah. Like, it takes you out. Yeah, she, uh, this is the little things, you know, the string tied around yeah, her finger. I remember. Yeah. yeah, like, and she always answers her own questions. Now, what? Oh, yes. And another actor who I know you don't have in here, but I made note of it. The water skier at the beginner, beginning of the movie is the most overacting ever in any movie ever. <laughs> Everything is cranked to 11 immediately. 
and it is all so fake and bad. Yeah, and uh, and she's—I don't have her in my in my notes, but she's very important because uh, she she's innocent and in that she doesn't want anything to do with this, and it ends up killing two people. Boom. Angela is unleashed. But let's talk about uh, Camp Arawak's resident mean girl, Karen Fields as Judy. Oh, what a bitch. Karen is a terrific antagonist and has one of the best lines of bitchy dialogue towards Angela. She's a real carpenter's dream, flat as a board and needs a screw. It's still funny, you know, 38 years later. Wait, I got to backtrack us because there's one other great uh, fucking little insult thing from Ricky. Eat shit and live. Oh, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, okay. hold on, hold on, because we're gonna. Oh, well, you, we're, we're gonna we're gonna do something special with that. Okay. Um, despite how great Karen is in the role, she wasn't the original choice. Do you have any idea no. who was cast in the role of Judy? It was actually Jane Krakowski, who you may know from uh, Thirty Rock, Ellie McBeal. But she dropped out when she read the script. It's like, I'm not going to have things happen to me that happen to this character. Don't blame um, her. Jane Krakowski's uh, fucking terrific. It's probably better for her career than yes, she probably was absolutely. in this movie. Uh, Judy isn't the only bitch at Camp Arawak. We also have Catherine Kami, which probably at the time she was the most well-known. She plays the role of Meg. She's the bitchy camp counselor who has yeah. it out for Angela. I have it in my notes. This bitch just spelled Meg. It's three fucking letters. Look, this bitch just spelled... I have to prove. But I did, she did make me miss chicks wearing like like roped headbands. Oh, sexy stuff. Yes. At the time of Sleepaway Camp uh, was being produced, Catherine was probably the most famous of the cast. Uh, she was currently on TV as Pamela Kingsley in the soap opera all my children. Now, here's one of the interesting things about one of the just the one of the many weird things about this movie. Catherine, who was 18, maybe 19 at the time, her character of Meg has a big date with Mike Kellen's character of Mel, who was 61 <laughs> yeah. years old. So add this to another weird sexual angle of sleepwalking. I'm going to stop you there. That's Meg trying to get her a sugar daddy or money because she approaches him. He does not approach her. No, you're right, but he's also like... Oh, he's down, he's and that's wrong. But she's, she's, she's getting paid so he can get if laid. If she's legal... We'll say it's uh, less desirable, but I'm not going to make the the judgment that it's wrong. No, I said last episode, if you have pubic hair when somebody's born, don't fuck them. And I stand by that. <laughs> it's very wrong. But on Meg's part, it's a smart move. Because look at him just throwing around $50 a week and $15 a week raises. He's got that money. Well, I mean, that good. thin gold chain he always wears, you know. Well, got to make that money one way or another. <laughs> and speaking of Mike Kellen, Mike Kellen... As Mel, the negligent camp owner, and you've touched on it. He looks like the love child of a monster and a frog. <laughs> he He's had a long, successful acting career going back to the 1950s. He appeared in such movies as God Told Me To, The Jazz Singer, Just Before Dawn, Midnight Express. So one of the sad things in retrospective is that he was dying of cancer when they were filming this movie. And unfortunately, Sleepaway Camp would be his final film, and he would pass away, give or take, about three months before it was released. Mel is another interesting 
layer to this movie that like we talk a lot about in previous episodes and like the difference in like low budget filmmaking and like Hollywood filmmaking it in if this had been a Hollywood film this character would be older but still probably good looking or or he would be like abnormally Super. gross and because he's just an old Frog mobster. Yeah, I think there's something special about this casting that wouldn't have happened if this had been a studio film. Hey, he has my absolute, beside the end reveal, he has my favorite moment with his final confrontation with Ricky. <laughs> and um, well, let's let's talk let's talk a little bit. He about thinks that. throughout the movie it is set up that Ricky's the killer, and he keeps trying to catch him. But when he find Mel finds Meg's body. And he's not going to get that barely legal poon like a pervert that he is. He snaps. So he takes Ricky and tries to beat him to death. He he actually thinks he, thinks he beat him to death. That's what I like. But then at the end, there's like a moan and, oh, he's still alive off camera. There's never on camera with the makeup pummeling <laughs> of this, you know, complicit at the least cousin. So he kind of gets He does get a little bit of moral judgment. But it's for the wrong reasons. He doesn't know his fucking but, cousins. But at the kid. same time, it's it's is it moral? Is he morally doing these things, or is it like you're fucking my business up? Oh no no no! He's not doing it more. If he it, no, he does. It is initially strictly financial, and then tied in with the sexual. He was going to have a date that night with Meg. That's what tips him over the edge. It's he never popped, moral. He put to see Alice. Four hours <laughs> yeah. in advance, and he'd been walking around camp, you know, yeah, ready, cock lock, and ready to rock. But it's not moral on his part. It is the universe give doling karmic justice to Ricky, that piece of shit child, <laughs> who's actually seventeen. I'm still, I'm still amazed by that. Like, wow. But um. No, like what? that. It's my second favorite moment when he's just beating him like a monkey, like like in, <laughs> like how the the Planet of the Apes guys like beat him with like double fist and down. Like he beats the shit out of that well, kid. So not every person at Camp Arawak is a complete dickwad. So next up on our cast, we have Paul D'Angelo as Ronnie. Ronnie's the only good one, man. Ronnie, and then that one chick who gets smacked and then does nothing. Yeah, the rest of the movie. Um, Paul's claim to fame is Sleepaway Camp, but more specifically. His attire in the movie Fuck, has become yeah. legendary. Actually, Felissa Rose had this to say about Ronnie's fashion sense. That crop top and those shorts, amazing. That's the best part of the movie. He brought that to set with him. You know it. He's like, we got wardrobe today. He's like, no, I got this. Dude, his, his shorts are so tight that... It doesn't matter if you look away. His dick is going to be fucking imprinted what, on your synapses. What's the phrase I've even heard you? You don't know what you're going to catch unless you, you gotta, lay out the bait. You got to put the bait out no. there to see what's biting. Exactly. He was laying that bait out. He has a short, short, tight shorts that probably Felissa Rose could have fit comfortably in. It would have been a little baggy on her. But, I you thought know. you were going to go a different direction. Oh, no, no, no. That she could have fit in because they were so tight. And he's a burly guy. And, man, if I if I had a body like him, 
I probably wouldn't bother Dude, wearing a shirt. Fuck, his his dick is like up into like the waistband, so it doesn't like hang out the bottom of his shorts. But he keeps it classy with the crop top. He's, He's like, you don't get all of it. You don't get the total package. No nips, ladies. No nips. <laughs> Eighteen and older. Yeah. And Ronnie's respectable. However, there there is some like questionable decisions that he makes. He he does lead Angela directly to... He's a meathead. He's but a, meathead. a kind-hearted meathead. Good point. Do you think, especially now, if you rewrote this, this script contemporarily, Ronnie would have a bigger role in this movie in being sort of the good force throughout yeah. it? And maybe there would be like a, a showdown at the end where he's trying to talk Angela off the ledge before killing you know, Paul or whatever, but it is what it is. The script of this movie um, maybe falls short a hair in some areas, and I feel Paul is sort of let down because he's not necessarily a great actor, but he's one of the better... He's very serviceable. Yeah. For a low-budget horror movie, hell yeah. Last, but certainly not least, we have the love interest of Angela. We have Christopher Collette as Paul. Now, of all the young cast... Christopher may have had the most successful acting career after Sleepaway Camp, having appeared in such things as the Manhattan Project. I was literally yeah. watching right before Fat Tony got here. And I had to Google him during watching the movie. I'm like, where have I seen him before? And the movie I most know him from is the Manhattan Project. I had not seen it. It's on HBO Max right now. Um, I've seen it you know, years yeah. ago, but it's been years since I've seen it. And I love John Lithgow and Cynthia Nixon when she was young. She could fucking get it. And so I, I really enjoy it. He makes movie. a nuclear bomb in that movie. I just had that, to. That he does. He uses some clever tricks to get into a. Yeah, steal I mean, the plutonium. Post, this movie could not exist in a post 9 no, world. No, it is quintessentially like 1985 80s. or when, you know, whenever it came out. Uh, he was also in the Langoliers, but his true claim to fame has been an in-demand voice actor, and most notably, 640 episodes of Pokemon. Damn. So, there are kids out there who have heard this guy and had no clue. Who does it? Do you have who he plays? He's in oh. a plethora a whole of, bunch of people. Uh, okay. characters. He's, you know... Like the one guy on The Simpsons who does... Dave, uh, Dave Herman or, yeah. you know, one of those one of those guys, you know, the utility player, yeah. but still super in demand. Weird little piece of trivia about Christopher. He was really good friends with Corey Haim, and he served as a pallbearer at his funeral. Oh. So he was sort of like an unofficial member of the Brat Pack. Now, we do have to go back to the character. Talk Is about it? him. Coercion equals rape. He's a little piece of shit, too, and I'm glad he dies. You know, he's all nice guy at first, but then he's like, oh, I wasn't trying to do anything that bad. Oh, come on, baby. You know, no means no, motherfucker. There's a scene in, in the movie, and it still happens, but in the in the script, Felissa Rose has commented on it several times that, you know, when they they have a little, like, an innocent peck on the lips yeah. kind of thing, but then later on at the waterfront, they're full on making out. And in the script, it was, he undoes her blouse. Well... You know, Felissa was a 13-year-old girl at the time, and they used a almost like an ace bandage kind of thing to, yeah. to put her what small boobs she had at the time. By the way, Felissa has developed very nicely. She's a very attractive woman yeah, now. Yeah, we can talk all the shit we want about like her being hot now. She's older than both of us. Hell yeah, she's hot. But but then, you know, I mean, Milf. She, she had... Yeah, definitely. But she, you know, she was underdeveloped Oh, at yeah, the time. yeah, definitely. So, 
he's undoing her blouse, and Felissa has commented on several times, like, what is he expecting to find? <laughs> Which is, is funny, but at the same time, like, if the twist, you know, is, is the case, you know, flat-chested, yeah, whatever. But I, I'm going to agree with you. I, I think that, that Paul is uh, misguided at best and a piece of shit at he's worst. A, I, he's a piece of shit, and they still try to make him... Make him out until the whole incident with Judy and her boobs, you know, making out. I'm not going to lie to you in the same exact situation. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's a 13-year-old boy I, in character. Yeah. I, I probably would have. I mean, who can blame him but? I would have. I Any any willing participant of those young 80s ladies would have would have uh, gotten aboard the lane train. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> but... They, they they make him, like, in that lens, it's like, oh, he's not that bad. You know, he's just a normal... No. No means no, motherfuckers. No, I, and I agree with you. Um, but through the, through the lens of a 13-year-old oh, kid... Yeah. Oh, hormones, no, I totally... It's... Uh, there, there, there's enough, there's enough humanity left into him for his, you know, um, eventual demise to be regrettable. But he still gets what he deserves. I want to freeze frame the last scene with a hashtag me too. That should be there. Set. <laughs> now, so I don't know about you, but my bloodlust at this point is through the fucking roof. We got anticipation out the ass talking about our laundry list of victims. So let's get to it. Number one and number two, we have John Baker, who is played by Danny Tercy, and one of his children, we won't get into which one, and uh, when a camp trio, they're out uh, skiing, they plow over their overturned boat. What do you give this kill? I gave it as a kill a two out of ten, but for humor, like a six out of ten. It's just funny as hell, because they could totally turn. It could totally turn, but two out of ten for that, an actual horror movie kill. I gave it. I gave it a six out of ten. I gave it six out of ten for the funny. So. And and I, I'm actually going to give it for a different reason. This this kill is funny. It's not su- supposed yeah, to be. No. However, the pain screams of the teary eyed girl who's skiing. Her overacting is make, great. makes this work, but I agree with you. God, they could they could have avoided this so easily, and especially if you're skiing, if you know anything about skiing, and I, I'm not a fan of water. I fucking hate water, as we've established in my my camp story. But if you are that close to shore, you're not going to take your fucking boat skiing that close because yeah. it's, that's super dangerous because you're going to run up ashore and then the yeah. person you're skiing they're going to get slung out you know out in the other so eh it, you know it is what it is but I gave it a 6 out of 10 but your your reasoning I can I can yeah, agree I, with I can agree with that number 3 Kenny who is played by John Dunn along with Thomas E. Vandell who plays the role of Mike they approach Angela and when she doesn't react to their pickup lines Kenny retorts yo Angela how come you so fucked up (laughs) (laughs) that's not so PC bro Kenny and uh, Mike uh, exchange, uh, you know, jabs with Ricky, who is wearing the most hilariously oversized cowboy hat. Um, He just opens a can of whoop ass, which does a good job of giving you the possibility that Ricky is the killer because he's he's the red herring throughout the thing. Um, Later that night, Kenny takes a girl out to the lake, but just like the asshole he is, he purposely tips the boat over. 
his date swims away, and thankfully, because she survives the night. But because of this, you know, he's a dickwad, and he pokes his head out. He's randomly singing and making sounds in it. Ugh, it I echoes. Mean, it's, it's I forgot. T- he spoke. He was high. You're right. Yeah, they smoked weed because the one guy laughing so realistically, <laughs> like you do on marijuana. But you know, he he's, he pops his head out from under you know the the boat or whatever, and then in front of him and with the back of the head to yes. the camera, head pops up, and you see hands pull him under. Next morning, one of the counselors discovers Kenny's dead body under the boat. There's a water snake that slithers out of his mouth. What do you give this kill? Okay. I have two scores for this one as well. As an actual kill, two out of ten. It's drowning. It's not. Body reveal, seven out of ten. That's fucking awesome. But I can't count, like, the method of killing is really lame. I agree with you, but this is also the, sort of early in the film, so they're they're not giving well, their, like their said, hand away. Seven out of ten for the reveal. I gave it a six out of ten. In terms of slasher films, this is not visually interesting, no. but it is a satisfying kill because this dude's oh, a, dickwad, a dickwad, and I like the mystery of everything that's going on in the film at this point. Yeah. like they're still playing it pretty close to the could best. Could be an accident. It's just unfortunate. Yeah. Is there a killer? Number four. Now, throughout the film, there has been run-ins between Ricky and Billy, who is played by Loris Dyron. I'm probably mispronouncing that. But I think we need to highlight the verbal jousting between the two rivals with a rant's recreation. You you almost jumped the gun with this, and so we'll we'll get the full He doesn't let me know these things in advance. I like your surprise. All right. I will be reading the stage directions and the role of Billy, and Fat Tony will be our protagonist of Ricky. Oh. All right. As Billy approaches the plate to bat, shortstop Ricky antagonizingly looks to throw his rival off his game. This guy blows dead dogs. Just lay it in there. Eat shit and die, Ricky. Eat shit and live, Bill. <laughs> Now, later on in the film, Billy and a group of campers toss water balloons at Angela from the top of their cabin. Ricky explodes with, you know, expletives towards Billy, but he's intercepted by Mel. We yet again uh, get to see the lead of Ricky as the red herring. So we're still planting these seeds. Now, back in the bunk, after the situation had died down, Billy grabs a magazine and enters the bathroom stall to, in his words quote-unquote, take a wicked dump. As he sits on the toilet, a wooden handle slides uh, between the stall doors, you know, the handles. Yeah. And this prevents him from being able to get out. As a beehive is slung in through the back window, Billy is stung to death. What do you give this kill? Seven out of ten. Uh, it's the review, the slow pan up. And here's one reason. I am no longer afraid of bees, but growing up, I was terrified of bees because I knew my mom was allergic. She wasn't, like, deathly allergic. Like, we would have had time to got her to the hospital had she got stung. She's not going to go into immediate anaphylactic shock. But, like, bees got under my skin. Uh, so, and the, 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 the gnarly fucking look on the face when it pans down to it. 7 out of 10. I also gave this a 7 out of 10. I would have given, given this... Probably a little higher if you'd actually gotten to see bees when the hive was coming down, but it's more of an implied thing. Um, Above and beyond slasher kills, the genre, you know, at this time were probably more, you know, visceral and to the point. 
but this still gives me chills. I don't like bees. I don't like bugs. And when you're taking a dump and your kind pants magazine, are down. Just ready to relax and when, drop one. Yeah, like when your pants are around your ankles, that's such a vulnerable position to be in. So seven, maybe a seven out of half, seven and a half. I could probably be persuaded to go a little higher. Number five, Meg, who is played by Catherine Comey. Uh, throws Angela into the lake because she's pissed about what she sees as quote-unquote special treatment. Now, throughout the movie, you know, she's not playing tennis because, you know, she doesn't want to. So there, there is an element of Meg being correct, but at the same time, she's going about it the fucking wrong I, in way. In my notes, way up here, even earlier than this, where is it? That bitch Meg, or Meg needs fucking meds. So does fucking Judy. <laughs> because Angela has been exempt from these physical activities, uh, Meg is just, you know, agitated. Again, Ricky tries to intervene, but is stopped by camp owner Mel, who is now certain that he is the killer. And uh, later in the night, Meg, who's made a date with the much older Mel, uh, she needs a quick shower to rinse around the key parts to make it nice and presentable. <laughs> a horse bath. A horse bath to make uh, to make her snatch of you know more presentable to male who is going to chomp on it like a cigar. <laughs> <laughs> um, as she's showering, a knife plunges through the metal partition and pierces her back. The knife tears downward through both the metal really and long her way. flesh. Is that metal metal. or is that wood? No, it's it's supposed to be metal. Okay, I I I was that was in my notes. And because it's metal, you know, aluminum, thin aluminum, but still metal, that knocked my my down a little bit. I gave it a four out of ten. Hill didn't do it for me, and I'm able to suspend my disbelief to a point. But nobody that is a this is the biggest separation. A child is going to be able to put. And I have something to say about that too. Later, when we get to the twist twist, even though we spoiled it like three times so far. <laughs> but anyway, I gave it a 7 out of 10 because it's so fucking ridiculous. How does the killer know right well? Oh, her back's there now. Because where the stab is coming from, there is no window. It goes down like a ridiculously long time. And at no point in time does she even try to move forward. Oh, the only time she moves forward it's is... It's when she randomly drops from the shower, which she... I even have there, like, how did, why does she fucking fall? Oh, how the fuck did she fall? <laughs> right when Mel walks in, her body falls through the curtain, and you see the big, long gash down that's just That's just tried and true slasher. It is. It's a horror know, trope, yeah. but I'm just... Yeah. But no, I, I You see the actress, like... Yeah. Action! And then she falls to the top. When when Mel discovers her body, she has no blood on her back. Nope. And the idea is that, you know, the, the water, water washed, is wa- yeah. washed it away. But she has, uh, you know, the slit in her back. And that was accomplished with wax. It was like not a, a pre-made thing. He just yes. uh, he sculpted it on her back at the time. And Another stuff, reason it gets a 7 out of 10 for me is for when the killer goes and rinses the knife off in the shower. I don't know why that's so stupid. But it is. I mean, like, I'm killing, but, you know, cleanliness is next to God. <laughs> That's probably something instilled by the mother. Yeah, the aunt. Cr- crazy yeah. aunt. Well, you know what I mean. Yes. Uh, number six, Judy, who is played by Karen Fields, is sitting in the dark alone in her cabin, curling her hair as a silhouetted figure blocks the light from the doorway. The shadow moves towards Judy and knocks her ass out with a punch. I laugh every time I see this. Judy's body is flipped to her back as a pillow is placed over her head, 
and is stabbed right in her twat with a red hot curling iron, albeit inferred because of the shadow silhouette and Judy's hands reaching uh, upward in pain. What do you give this? Eight to? out of ten. I gave this a 10 out of 10. I only have one 10 out of 10, and obviously you know which one it's going to be because the overall impact of the entire scene and... The reason I gave this is it's creative, and I think this is one of those times where inferring something... Because the way you're playing out in your brain is going to be so much more visceral than the reality of it, but man... That's a fucking. It's a great kill. We both agree. Way to yeah, kill it's somebody. horrible. To add insult to injury, her body is just dumped to the side, and her bunk is slid back back over. I, I love this kill. I, I love it. It's great. It's it's eight out of ten for me. All right, number seven, number eight, number nine, and number ten. The bodies of four young kids are found dead in their sleeping bags by Count Counselor Eddie, who is played by Fred Green. Now, at first, I hated this entirely because they seemed innocent but after mulling it over and I think I may have an explanation throughout the movie uh, there have been kids who have been shitty to Angela and I'm pretty sure that these kids are specifically the kids who kick over uh, the, the sand onto her when she gets thrown into the water that doesn't necessarily justify it but at least now i can i can point parallels of why they were killed we give two out of ten because a it's off screen b it and maybe you're right but it just seems like random kill just random kill let's up the body count real quick it's a oh why are these people going camp they're the only people going camping on the big social night none of that situation that's because they were the younger kids it just seems like all insert shots to me so, no, 2 out of 10. I gave it a 4 out of 10. Kids' deaths are more unsettling, or at least, you know, they should be. Uh, no, they're not. I would rank this higher if, for two reasons, if they had the balls to show it and if it had been made more clear why they were being killed. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that that would have done it, but it's just so seemingly random i shouldn't have to be a detective and go back through and piece why a killer is killing kids in a horror movie you're you're not the only one who feels that way and it doesn't matter if it's eight eighty three or 2021 killing kids is movie in movies is still controversial director robert hiltzik had this to say if i have one regret with the film it's the scene with the little kids that didn't really play out the way it was supposed to. If I had the chance to do it again, I would probably do something different. Even for a film like this, it seems a little extreme, and it's one part of the movie I'm uncomfortable with. So I, I think you know there are probably boundaries that when you cross, you cross them for a good reason, and I feel like this is probably needless for this movie. It's not a good reason, and it's not done well. I gave it 2 out of 10 because it is shocking to kill little kids in a movie. I'll give it that. Yeah, but I, they barely glimpse them. I mean, it's just uh, yeah. They, I I I feel like there there could be. I'm not saying it couldn't be done or shouldn't be done. This should what, be done in every movie. They should kill small <laughs> children in every movie. I'm looking forward to Space Jam too, where, where all the where all the children get killed. Uh, number eleven, horny old male seeks out Meg, who is supposed to have a date, but only finds her dead body as it falls from the shower. In hilarious fashion with a knife, uh, you know, knife wound in her back. 
In a frenzy, he searched the camp for Ricky. He beats the shit out of the kid to the point where he thinks he's killed him. In a panic, Mel runs away from Ricky's seemingly lifeless body onto the archery range where an arrow pierces his throat. What do you give this kill? I gave this a 7 out of 10 because I like... It's not... As a slasher kill, it's not that... It's neat. It's a neat little gag, but... I like his last moment of life is, oh shit, I killed a kid. I was wrong. It's extra fucked up. Like, he gets to die with it. No, it can't be you. Thunk. It is great. Um, But you could also maybe point that back to the the two-killer theory, which I'm not convinced on, but whatever. I give this a 10 out of 10. And the reason, and the reason I did is... I'm pretty astute. You know, I'm a student of the game, understanding special effects and how they work. It was until they released this on Blu-ray, which is sitting right next to you. Yes, I have my phone on it. Autographed copy. Autographed copy. It was until this, and they released the the documentary that I figured out how they did this shot. Because as a kid on VHS, step and repeat. Yeah, yeah. like, Like, I had a forehead VCR where you could, like, you know, Oh, yeah. Do the, the frame steps by frame. frame by frame. And I could not figure out how they did this. So I gave this a 10 out of 10. And just to add to the idea of, of how they accomplished this. So the, the arrow part that's in the back of Mel's throat is like tied down. So there's like a string they would pull and it would flop up. And it gives you the, yeah, the, you know, the, the impact of like it's protruding from the back. Yet still... In the grand scheme of like slasher movie kills, this isn't spectacular, but it was just, it was the inventiveness of like, how did they accomplish this? Because there's no camera cuts, it's all in camera. So for that reason, even knowing now how they did it, I still give it a 10 out of 10 because I think it's one of the most realistic kills ever done in a slasher movie. Oh, yeah, it's very well done. All right, number 12. Angela and Paul, who is played by Christopher Collette, head down to the water and playfully exchange kisses. Paul persists beyond what Angela is comfortable with, uh, which triggers a flashback to her father in bed with a man. Hold on, I gotta show, show you my note on this, too. I, most boring gay sex ever. <laughs> They're just sitting there kind of petting. Well, like, uh, may, here, maybe they've already had the sex. This is the the post the post coital. They're just staring at each other, creepy. I've because never, they love each other. I love my old lady. I'm not gonna go bang her and then just stare at her silently while I rub her head. That's serial killer shit. It was in their DNA. <laughs> it's nature, and that's it. We've solved the riddle. <laughs> Angela was fucked either way. <laughs> oh, my God. Now, the next day, Angela catches Paul kissing Judy in the woods woods during the game of Capture the Flag, which I played at camp. So much fun. Yeah. It's probably one of my highlights of camp. And this leads Angela to be mistrusting of Paul. So this is the first kink in the armor of the yeah. relationship. Paul is persistent in pursuing Angela, so she finally agrees to meet him once again at the waterfront and goes skinny dipping. In the wake... Of the dead bodies being discovered, Ronnie and an unnamed uh, female counselor, yeah. uh, they go searching the waterfront and discovers Angela cradling the decapitated head of Paul. What do you give this kill? 10 out of 10, because it's not just the cradle, it's the throw in the head, it's the standing up, it's the reveal. And honestly, that scene 
fucked me up as a kid. Hold, hold on, because okay. we're, we're getting to it. I gave this kill a 6 out of 10. It's, it's off screen. The reveal is what makes it Again, impactful. But the kill itself, okay. eh, it's it's fine. I do like the, the throwing of the head yeah. and stuff. That's that's a nice little touch. But the twist end, to end all twist ends, Angela is revealed to have a penis. <laughs> <laughs> but thankfully, the effect was achieved by doing a life cast of Felissa Rose uh, on her face, um, which was fashioned into a mask, which was made of dental acrylic, worn by a, you know, a, <laughs> a 18-year-old man who was so drunk to get through yeah, this. Yeah, he, he, he cried. He just, he was, he was, he had to talk himself into this, and he had, like, you know, beer and Jack Daniels, and this dude was three sheets of the wind. To this day... The identity of this man is not known. He's been reportedly so traumatized by the experience, he's never came forward to claim his spot in horror history infamy. We'll get to we'll get to the the twist in just a moment, but this wasn't the original plan. Oh, special effects artist Ed French had this to say about the original plan for the twist. There was talk, actually, about me making her up with a penis. Oh, no. I think when I started doing that and people saw the reality in the clay sitting on my workshop bench, they rethought this again. Okay, Now good. that the cat is out of the bag, we can discuss how iconic is this ending. Oh, uh, the movie overall, you take away that ending, it is forgettable. Four out of ten slasher movie. With that, that puts it into like cult 80s legend. That dick popping out. <laughs> and a fairly hairy chest. But I did check the legs look shaved because Felissa Rose is in shorts the whole movie. I'm like, I remember hair. And there is chest. And he's not super hairy. It's kind of condensed in the center of the chest. Yeah, they they uh, they shaved the, the key areas. And we're not only forgetting the look of the mask on this poor young drunk boy's head and the uh, the sound that is coming out it's fucking terrifying when 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 Felissa went for her life casting she had to hold that face you know yeah. that's an irregular position for your face to be in for long enough for the plaster yes. and stuff and the reason they didn't make this into a like a foam uh, appliance or whatever they wanted it to hold the rigidity of that expression because that's the whole you know that's yes. the iconic ah, face so he's wearing a hard mask but the way it's shot it's it's it, the effect pretty much holds up yeah it does and then the insert shots of like actual of her, of yeah. her but the sound the overall reveal like I was floored and again I was a young man watching this I'm like Am I gay now? Is this what's a, you know, I realized like 30 minutes in, I'm like, I know that's an actor. I know that was a mask, but there was a lot of conflicting little emotions and little, little Tony because, oh my God. But yes, no, that legitimately unsettled me besides making me question my sexuality at a young age. The effect itself is just fucking terrifying. It's it's the one part of the movie where I think the music, which yeah, is overly is bombastic, deserved. it that that is unsettling. 
Like unsettling. Of all secret dick reveals, there's that and the crying game, and that takes a cake. We'll we'll we'll, t- we'll actually talk about the crying game in a little bit. Okay, so the other elephant in the room, you know, the dick, and we've got to go down this rabbit hole. Is Sleepaway Camp a pro or an anti-LGBTQ movie? <sighs> that is so fucking hard. Well, I don't think they're implying that Angela is a trans woman. Angela had that forced on her, and that's where the mental illness. So I'm not going to say it's pro or anti because this isn't, you could, t- d- we'll debate the sequels, you know, if you want those, that's a whole different can of worms. Well, but d- the original just one, up front, we will not be doing retrospectives. No, on they're those. so bad. If we do those, it'll be on Rants After Dark, <laughs> and those are watch-alongs because they're just fun, dumb fun. Yes, and you don't watch those ever sober, especially the third one. Anyway, no, I guess it, they do, they don't say up front, oh, look at that freak. They let you know with the flashback and the crazy fucking ant that this was mental illness forced upon this person. So I don't think it's it's neither for nor against. Uh, for years, this film has been championed by the LGBTQ well, community. They know better than me. But Uh-oh. in the past couple of years, it has come under fire, just like most things, because of Twitter mobs. And they have called, and I say they, I mean people on Twitter who, for all we know, could be unrepresentative of the LGBTQ Q community. Sometimes there's, yeah. you know, the the white there's knight out there who, yeah. who want to who who have the right uh, who who want the right thing for the wrong reasons, you know, and or and some people just want to be victims. That's that's true. That's true. Um, that being said, well, uh, do they come out as anti-trans or something or they, transphobic? Yeah, it's it's been both pro and anti everything under the sun and everything it's just popular media of the past which you know this is very much of its time but it just so happens that you know in 2021 trans rights and things are just more prevalently mainstream now so it's sort of being reevaluated so we'll we'll hold judgment you know for ourselves uh, until we discuss it in greater detail but that being said the cast have been more supportive uh, of, you know, the film as being, you know, sort of not necessarily a negative thing. It's been interesting that he had this to say, Jonathan Tiersen, it's been interesting because the transgendered community had embraced the film entirely and then some people look at it as if it's not pro-transgender. I say, you know, everybody can have their own opinion and it's mostly about bullying and bullies getting their just desserts. And rapists. And, yeah, and there's... It's really the kids, you know, adult, but they might have kicked sand. So. Adult, adults accusing children of murder and beating the shit out of them. There, there's, That's there, just there, funny. There's, there's just so many strange layers to the movie, but uh, director Robert Hiltzik has gone on record saying that wasn't his intent to make an anti-trans movie. His intent was only to make a shocking film, which I think for most in parts, he he absolutely... uh, He did. He did. He had this to say, we pushed the envelope a little bit, but I didn't want to do a standard film. Now, when they submitted the film to the MPAA, they were fully expecting an X rating because of content and because of the Did not see a lot of wieners back then. And uh, 
surprisingly, very little had to be changed about the movie. Robert had this to say about the rating. We were all very nervous about what the ratings board was going to come back with. Actually, I was concerned I was going to get an X rating, and the sensibilities were back then, so I get a call, and the ratings board, they say, well, we got some bad news for you. And I said, really? What's the news? We're going to have to give you an R rating. I said, okay, I guess we're going to have to accept that, quote, unquote, bad (laughs) news. And, of course, they were ecstatic. Um, Because of the, the tide of, you know, both uh, people being more apt to inclusion and you know not not slurring uh, gender, race, and all those things uh, in a negative light. And, and this is an exploitation movie, and the intent is to, is to shock, but intentionally or unintentionally, they do have a character which was probably less prevalent in the mainstream. Because that's tra- why it trans- was so shocking. Yeah. If this movie were made today, do you think Sleepaway Camp would still get an R rating because of content or, you know, and the the kills? Yeah, I do. It's like it's weird sometimes, you know, something will get a PG-13, but it has, a again, a psychosexual element to it, and the MPAA is very... Well, I'm not necessarily saying an R rating. Do you do you think like this would be oh, let's be crucified an if X it... an X rating today? Because there's so much pushback about the treatment of children on screen. There's so much pushback about you know representation and, and how you're not not, I, not demonizing things. So I'm actually conflicted. I don't it. think it would still receive an X. I, I don't. It'd be an R immediately or not NC set. They don't X rate. Well, then, yeah, they do, but NC-17, I don't well, think it would be... a rating yeah. higher than R. No, I don't I don't think so, because, again, the violence, there's no female nudity, and at the and end, there's I think that was not actually that much intent- of a leaner. Oh, yeah. I think they, it was intentional. Yeah. And you know what? Good on the girls for having... Or, you know, homosexual men, or however they want to... You know, I'm glad there's some man meat on this flight. <laughs> Congratulations, ladies. Uh, we're in a... We're, uh, this was the, the genesis of uh, swinging th- dicks on screen. For I can't think films. of any other like slasher movies that are all man meat. <laughs> I can't. There's that horror movie. Wow, fuck the. It has some, it has the Winter Soldier in it. The the Covenant. It's a bunch of male witches who are supposedly straight, but they spend all their time half naked. But yeah, it has Sebastian Stan. Well, there you go, ladies. Check that out if you want to. <laughs> no, don't even. It's a horrible movie. <laughs> You just put it on mute and watch the I've boys. watched plenty of terrible movies for nudity. I'm sure there's some women out there that will watch a terrible movie to see some see some meat. So I bought Vampire's Kiss day it came out. Listen, Is it Vampire's Lana. Kiss or Vampire's Embrace? Oh, fuck. I know the movie you're talking about. Yeah. Listen, Malone. Oh, yeah. Day one. Bought it. Lesbians. Listen, oh. oh, Malone was my first crush ever. <laughs> so, I think we've covered Sleepaway Camp pretty thoroughly, as much as a movie like this can be covered. Um, But there is one final parallel we have to address before we can close out this episode. So last episode, we discussed how Mayhem and the Belko Experiment, although similar premises, wasn't a result of plagiarism. But one parallel thinking because of the screenwriters. They just happen to have similar ideas. That being said, there is a film that has a shocking revelation, especially at the time. And time and time again, this film has been called into question for being very similar to Sleepaway Camp, which 
right off the bat. No. Nothing similar about this other than one specific element. So after a decade of the release of Sleepaway Camp, director Neil Jordan would release a film called The Crying Game, where a character is revealed to be transgendered. So, just for the sake of putting this argument to bed, did the crying game steal its twist from Sleepaway Camp? No, because their character actually was transgendered, and it was a choice. And honestly, it was funny. I knew about the twist ahead of time, but whoa, surprise dick. And he was packing, you know, for a, for a guy fella his size. Yeah, was Angela White, you're because, dick And I'm saying he because the actor himself was not trans. He was portraying a trans person, so I can't. But, uh, no, and it's honestly, aside from that, it's a well-acted movie. It's a terrific movie. It's a movie. well-plotted movie. Yeah. They are. They did not steal anything at all. Well, the, my answer to this, the simple answer is no. And we'll never know for sure if there wasn't, like, the seed of, like, idea planted. But I'm going to say 90% chance probably not. It's a it's a interesting parallel to draw, but you know the the vast valley be- between these films is enough to not see a dick <sighs> in sight. <laughs> well, is the fucking uh, dirty dancing did the, did they rip off from Sleepaway Camp because it takes place at a camp? Yes, that's how ludicrous. Oh, okay, well, they never did. mind. They, they did one hundred percent. They said they had to do a for, shot for shot remake. How for, how got threatened with a lawsuit. Nobody, nobody throws baby into a corner. <laughs> Jennifer Grey was going to play Angela. Yeah, and she does have a dick. But <laughs> 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 Patricia Arquette does poop porn. Exactly. Uh, unsubstantiated reports, people. Um, so closing, let's just let's just talk about. Um, Neither one of us are anti-trans. No, uh, I I don't I don't have a problem in the world with with someone living their life, uh, you know, outside of, you know, the body that unfortunately they were given. Whatever life you find that can bring you happiness, as long as it is not causing unhappiness to somebody else directly, then, you know, I don't have a problem with that in the world. So anybody that has, you know, if you're trans and and you, you know, you're a champion of Sleepaway Camp, then, you know, more power to you. We, we, we love this movie. I would love this movie without the twist, albeit I don't think it would be a classic, but uh, we're, I'm not, not hating on anybody. Live your life. No, like, uh, my, my stepdaughter's one of their best friends, practically another one of a child. He's a trans boy. Whatever, you know, I've gotten arguments at gas stations when I hear people talking about, oh, my kid thinks he's I'm like, I snapped on a dude up in Elizabeth. And I'm like, do you want a, a live fucking daughter or a dead fucking son? Yeah. And like said right out and loud, he just speechlessly walked off. I paid for my shit. I was blood boiling. So, but if a trans person tells me they feel it's anti-trans, it's their opinion. Yeah. Uh, and But if your opinion just differs from mine, it's you're wrong. You're obviously wrong, yes, because <laughs> yeah. we know what we're fucking talking about. Yeah. How dare you? Um, you know, film criticism is, is interesting, and especially, I, I like it when we do these episodes that sort of have, like, subtext, and we can Friday, discuss... Friday, uh, Nightmare uh, 2. Nightmare 2. But ultimately, this is just dumb fun. Yeah, and uh, you can you can dig into it as much as you want to. But at the end of the day, they just wanted to make a shocking movie, and I think they accomplished their goal. Oh yeah. So uh, solidarity with trans people out there, but more solidarity, more so with just film fans. Yeah, like film it, fans. hated anything. You know, we're 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 with you one way or another. I I'm going to give my seal of approval to Sleepaway Camp. Hell yes. 
All right. So from the psychosexual womb of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Psycho, mixed with a dab of Friday the 13th, we were gifted Sleepaway Camp, and I think it holds up. So speaking of holding up, I'm really interested to see what happens later this month when you and I watch Human Centipede 3 on (laughs) Rants After Dark. I had intended to bring this up, but it's about two weeks. We're going to be recording later, like early July. This is late June right now. I was going to bring it up and give it to him. And I'm kind of, I forgot, and I'm kind of glad because, have you seen it since we watched it at my I, house? I have not. Now, I'm going to do a little bit of prep You got to do some prep about this stuff, yeah. but actually watching it on screen, it's going to be, I actually watched a couple years ago with uh, Evelyn, and uh, it's just as bad as you think. It is the best of the best, creme de la creme of we're just going to do it to be intentionally shocking. Ooh, we're edgelords. I'm, I'm very, well. very, very excited to check out this movie. We hope you will join us. But if you don't, we also have something else big on the horizon. So coming August 1st, we will be back with another retrospective for our four-year anniversary Ooh. episode. And it's not locked in stone, but we may be headed back to camp. Oh, I'm intrigued. Camp. Yeah, we'll let that stew, and we'll we'll have announcements coming soon. Till then, please follow us on so- social media at Rance Black Lodge. Visit our homepage at JuicyKruger.com, and for the love of Cthulhu, buy a T-shirt or, or a mug from our rant, or from our almost at our rant store, our <laughs> web store at RantArmy.com. The Rants and the Black Lodge podcast can be found on most podcasting platforms, or you can check us out at ProjectLouder.net. For Fat Tony. This is Brandon A. Lane signing off. Till next month, Ran Army. Keep marching.